Acts 9 in your Bibles, please. If you care to use uh, one of the black Bibles that are provided there in the seats, you'll find today's text on page 580, actually 581, uh, because we'll be looking at the last part of chapter 9, 581 in the black Bibles that are provided. We're going to think together about Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through the end of the chapter. I think I misspoke last week when I said we were going to the end of the chapter. We didn't quite make it there. Uh, but uh, this week we'll be closing out chapter 9 as we continue our study about the early church in the book of Acts. I would invite you to follow along in your Bibles, not only and now as we read the text, but then also as we continue our our time together this morning, we participate at each Sunday morning in what we call expository preaching. Um, that term is not unique to us, but it is definitely the practice that we try to participate in. Uh, what we mean by that is that the text is what is to speak to us this morning, and our job is to simply expose the text of Scripture to our understanding and then apply it to us. Uh, we usually do that verse by verse, phrase by phrase and uh, work our way through a book. Right now we're working our way through Acts chapter 9. And so uh, let's read together if we could, uh, beginning in verse 32. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelled in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Annas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. Hey, Ryan, I can't see that behind me, so you can advance that. And Peter said to him, Ionus, uh, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her and laid her in an upper room, and since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And Peter rose and went with them. Then he had come, they brought, and when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and she saw Peter, and she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a Tanner. Father, we ask for your help as we consider this your word. We are humbled before it this morning, knowing that it is the word of the living God. It is only because you have revealed yourself to us that we can have any knowledge of who you are. So, Lord, help us to be faithful this morning as we consider this passage of Scripture. May we learn well from it, and may we change because of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have you ever changed your mind about something? I mean, dramatically changed your I don't mean like, oh, I want a different dessert. I mean like really changed your mind about something. I always enjoy meeting those couples that tell the story about how they met. And you know, she was not interested in him at all. 
And usually that's the way it works, right? Usually she's not interested in him, and he's interested in her, but she's like, I didn't want to have anything to do with him. And like, he asked me out, and I said no like four times, and finally, right? And those stories are just always so fun to me. Maybe you don't think they're fun, but I, I think it's hilarious, right? How someone can, can that dramatically change their mind about something, I mean, fairly important. Have you ever changed your mind about something that's like really important? Like, like seeing the world a different way, like the horizon is open and I see a whole new world of possibilities that I hadn't seen before, things that I hadn't considered before. I, I look at things in a, a very different way. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, there was a point in your life where you repented and believed. And, and that's the root of the idea of repentance is it is a change of mind. It is seeing things a different way. Well, but there are other things, even as we proceed in our Christian journey, that we change our mind about, that we understand better, that God, in his mercy, helps us to see. He opens our eyes. Well, Peter, in this passage, is beginning to go through that kind of a change in his perception. And because Peter is one of the key leaders of the early church, we actually see God broadening the horizons of the early church. You see God doing it in some, some rather unusual and unexpected ways. William Cooper wrote in 1774, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright design and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now, Cooper was specifically talking about the way in which God works even through adversity, through difficulty. But the principle is true that God sometimes moves in mysterious ways, ways that we don't expect. Well, in this passage of Scripture, we see God working to advance the gospel, the good news of Jesus, into the regions surrounding Jerusalem. And in verses 32 and through 35, we see God working in an unexpected place. And we learn from that that this is what God does. God, God delights to work in unexpected places. The whole while, in this whole broader context, we're learning that God changes us. God changes people. He changes followers. He changes you and me in unusual ways. So let's consider verses 32 through 35. So Peter, we say, he says in verse 32, he's now making his way throughout the countryside. So it seems as though Peter is on some kind of a preaching circuit. He is he's moving around in, in a broader geographic circle, and he is telling the good news of Jesus Christ to those not just there in Jerusalem, but now, now much broader. He's moving around, and he comes to this town called Lydda, which if if you're reading about it in the Old Testament, you would see it called Lod, L-O-D. It's an inland town that's south of Joppa, where he heals uh, this man named Ionus. He, he had been paralyzed for about eight years, and so Peter says to him, Jesus Christ, verse 34, Jesus the Christ heals you. Now you remember that this is this is a common wording there, especially in the early church, when they're explaining that this Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised one, the one who has been foretold, and particularly in Jewish settings, they are underscoring the fact that this is the anointed one, the Christ, 
the Messiah, the, the one that had been promised to Israel of old. And then, verse 34, by, by the authority in that name, he arises. Jesus, uh, He says, Jesus heals you in verse 34. Arise and make up your bed. Now, now especially parents are going to think that's miraculous because we've been saying arise and take up your bed for how long and it hasn't happened yet. So, uh, I mean, it's miraculous, right? Jesus says to this one who had been paralyzed for eight years, arise, make your bed, and just by the word of Peter, under the authority of Christ, uh, he, he is healed. Now, this man was a Jew. Those that were surrounding him were Jews. But take careful note of the fact that now, now Peter is in Gentile territory. He is, he is in a Gentile city, in a Gentile context. Now that's important because it, it, it seems like a subtle shift, but, but Peter's no longer ministering in the, the holy city of Jerusalem, right? I mean, this was, this was the pinnacle of all spiritual work. This is, this is the place where, where Jews for centuries had come to, to worship God in the temple. This is the place where Pentecost took place. This is the place that Jesus told them to go to to wait for the Spirit. I mean, this was this is the epicenter of, of Christ's work, but now what we see is it's starting to resound out throughout the countryside into, into the, the hills and the hollers, as they would say, into, into Gentile territory. No longer was the seat of ministry that was so highly regarded by Jewish people, the only place that God was at work. God was now at work. And Peter was seeing great success. The good news of Jesus was going forward into a Gentile setting. In fact, both accounts that we read in our text this morning took place in this, this Gentile context. In fact, the next account takes place in Joppa, which is a seaport town that was controlled by the Romans. Now, it seems that this was beginning to stretch the thinking of Peter. Peter was a staunch Jew. But we see in these verses a trajectory, right? Always be thinking of the bigger context of what's going on in the, in the broad narrative, even as you're thinking about what's happening in this specific narrative. That's true in general when you're studying your Bible. We're going to think not just about the passage, but what's going on ahead of it, what's going on behind it. So there's this trajectory in these two chapters, chapter 9 and 10, where, where Peter is being prepared. God is changing Peter, and he's really preparing his church for a global ministry. Now we'll say more about that as we move into the last part of the passage and, uh, and link it to the next context. But this is important, important to note because God is working in an unexpected place. God had been working in Jerusalem very clearly, very obviously, in miraculous ways. And, and now it's not just in Jerusalem. God is beginning to work in, in, the, in the suburban areas, in the, in the outstretched areas, in, in even Gentile contexts. So we say that God is at work in an unexpected place. Well, where do we see God at work? Well, look at verse 35 with me. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. 
So there's this this widespread revival, if you want to call it that, this this recognition that these men who are moving under the authority of Jesus Christ, who are giving the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, they have a message to advance. <coughs> And their message is true, it is verified as it was in these early days of the church, miraculously verified. And so, God is at work, and we see great delight as Peter, or as Peter spreads the word of the Lord, and people come to, come to know the gospel. Now, in this, this first uh, half of our passage... This paralytic is healed, and that seems to be a hopeless condition. In fact, even in our day, it is in large part a, a condition that cannot be alleviated. But, but Ionus was still alive. The next situation seems even more hopeless. So as we look at verses 36 and following, we see God delights to work despite hopeless situations. So we're introduced to verse 36 to to a believing woman. We know she's believing because it says, what, verse 36, a certain disciple. This is someone who is already a believer. Now, we don't know exactly how that came to be. Could she have been in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost and heard uh, the word concerning Jesus? We don't know. Um, maybe she had lived there and had, had moved. Uh, but, but here is this woman named Tabitha or Dorcas, depending on which uh, language the woman, it says, was full of good works and kindness, which she was doing. So clearly she was loved. She had been, been doing good works for others. She was caring for the poor. We even see here the widows that are showing the garments that had been made by her. And you remember in, in those days, we've reminded you a few times, there was no kind of welfare system. There was no kind of safety blanket. And so, so uh, people like widows would have been uh, dependent on the care of others. In, in that society. And so, very clearly, she has been doing wonderful things. She was well-loved. She was a follower of Jesus. And the verb tense here emphasizes that this was her continual practice. So she, she really is living out the gospel in her own context. She's showing the works of Jesus Christ. Well, in verse 37, she dies. And they perform the rituals of Judaism, the cleansing of the body. And they take her body to an upper room. Now, there's some, some application here, right? I mean, we're all one day going to die. We don't know when that day is. But one day, we will, we will leave behind a legacy. What will that legacy be? Well, very clearly, this woman had been living out a testimony of a changed life. A life of ministering to and serving others. And as she has done this, it spoke loudly about her faith. And now all that she has testified to, all that she has spoken of, all that her works were giving evidence to is now bolstered. It is amplified by this miraculous event that is to take place. So in verse 39, Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by weeping, showing the tunics and gar garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put them out, he knelt down to pray, and he turns to the body, and he says, in the last part of verse 40, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, she sees Peter, and then he presents her in verse 41. Now, it's interesting that this is kind of a sidebar, kind of a side note, 
If you go back to Mark 5, you will see Jesus performing a very similar miracle. And some commentators have really keyed in on these striking parallels that exist between this and, and the, the resurrection of a little girl that Jesus performs. In fact, it's really interesting because in the Aramaic, um, when Jesus says, uh, young lady or, or, or girl, arise, um, the, word is, the word for young lady is Talitha, and this woman's name is Tabitha. There's only one letter difference in what Jesus said in Mark 5 and what Peter says here in, in this passage of Scripture. So some interesting kind of striking parallels. It, it seems apparent to me that, that probably Peter had in mind what he had witnessed uh, and what he had been uh, uh, privy to uh, concerning this resurrection of Jesus. So, so through the power of Christ, uh, Peter kneels down, he prays, and he raises this woman. Again, we see God working. We see the verification of the message of Jesus through the apostle Peter. And again, what do we see? God uses this event, verse 42. It became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on uh, the Lord. So God is, again, using uh, this hopeless situation. They call for Peter. Now, we don't know what they had in mind when they called for Peter. Did they think that perhaps he could do this miracle? Uh, we don't know. It's, it's not clear. They call for Peter. What do we do? Peter comes, and again, the message of Jesus is verified by miraculous means, and many come to believe on the Lord. So now the gospel is, is not just a, a fledgling sect of Judaism in the, the Jerusalem temple. It is now starting to resound out even through Gentile territory, which really leads us to kind of the crux of what this passage is teaching, or what it is demonstrating, is that God delights to work with disregarded people. Notice what almost seems to be a footnote in verse 43 at the very end of the passage. So it was that he, that's Peter, stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Now, there's a couple really interesting things in that verse because it seems minor just to kind of note that at the end of the chapter. But there's actually some, some significant things in there to the, to the trajectory of the narrative, as I, I referred to earlier. The word tanner in the original language is last, and so that's the way the Greeks would often emphasize a word. They would put it first, or they would put it last to, to really strike uh, a chord. And so it's last here in the sentence, it's emphatic, and this is remarkable because the Jewish people avoided people with, with certain unclean jobs, like skinning dead animals and tanning them. In fact, at this time in Jewish culture, there were a couple legitimate grounds for divorce. If your husband became a leper, or if it was discovered that he was a tanner, this was grounds for divorce, right? Because he dealt in the unclean. And so when it says Peter, I mean, Peter's a fastidious Jew, right? I mean, he's a, he's a Jew of Jews. And, and so when it says he stayed in this house that smelled like dead carcasses, and, and he fellowshiped with a tanner, we might just read over that and say, okay, yeah, cool, that's where he stayed. 
But I mean, that's significant in the trajectory of where things are going in the book of Acts. Tanners were required to live outside the city because they were unclean. And so God is working and his work is expanding even into these, these unexpected places, even into these hopeless situations, even amongst people that were looked down on, that were disregarded, that were they were kind of despised, such as such as a, a tanner. Now, how far will this go? I mean, how far will this extend? Might it even extend, perish the thought, to the gospel going to Gentiles? Right? I mean, that would have kind of been the way that the Jewish people of the day would have looked at it. I mean, even down to the, to the Gentiles? Something else interesting in this little verse, right? He's staying in Joppa. Does anybody remember Joppa in the Old Testament? Jonah, right. So God calls Jonah to preach what? To the heathen. And what does he do? He runs to Joppa to find a ship so that he can escape preaching to Gentiles. I just think there's just tremendous irony right there. Right? God is about to do this work where the gospel is expanding out. Not you know, Christianity here in about two chapters goes from a, a completely Jewish religion, kind of a subsect of Judaism, to spreading out throughout all of the world. Right? You might think of chapters 9 and 10 as kind of like these isolated little vignettes. Right? But if you think about it broadly, we saw... We saw uh, the, the conversion of a man named Saul of Tarsus, right? Who would come to be most commonly associated. He, he was called the apostle to the, to the Gentiles. And then all of a sudden we go back to Peter and your mind's going, well, why did we go from, from Peter to Paul and then back to Peter again? Because God's doing something here in chapters 9 and 10. And as Gentiles, I think most if not all of us are, we should be really thankful for these two chapters. Because what God is doing here is he's, he's, he's broadening the horizons of the church. This is now becoming a global church here in the course of just a few years. And so this context is important. God is preparing Peter for greater ministry. He's broadening the horizons of the church. Remember all the way back at the beginning of our study of Acts, we said that the basic excuse me, the basic outline for the for the book of Acts is in one eight. Right? Jesus says to his disciples, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and then Judea, Samaria, that's chapters 8, right? Jerusalem is chapters 1 through 7, then chapters 8 through 12 is Judea, Samaria. We saw Philip, remember in chapter 8, preaching in Samaria, amongst these people that were so looked down upon. And then, unto the uttermost parts of the earth, that's that's chapter 13. And so we're kind of in this transitional phase where if you're not alert to it, you might not catch the neat things that God is doing to really make his church a global church, a church of all people. People from all different backgrounds, people from all different situations, 
We just watched this morning, if you were here in the discipleship hour, a video that told us not only the biblical grounds, but even delved a lot into the science of the fact that we are all one people. We are all one race. And this construct that there are different races is really a, a human construct based on extremely, extremely superficial consideration. Right? What you look like on the outside, your, your hair color and your skin tone and the shape of your eyes, those kind of things are just a, a tiny, tiny, tiny little fraction of your genetic code. That's really not who you are. But so often, humanly, we look at people and we categorize them. And, and in fact, if you look back through our human history, we have sinfully done so, putting people in different categories. When in reality, we're all one race. Well, God is kind of breaking up the thinking of these Jews who think that they're it. It's like, guys, did you not get it? When Jesus said Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, he didn't just mean like the few little Jews that are sprinkled throughout the earth. He meant all peoples of all nations that's who the gospel is for. And that's what we're beginning to see and, and develop. And in verse, excuse me, in chapter 13, we see it just break loose. We're about to see God work amongst disregarded people. And for that, we should be thankful. Because Jewish midwives in that day were from, forbidden from delivering a Gentile baby. Yet spiritually, God is using these, these men, these apostles, to bring forth spiritual babies, spiritual fruit, as the gospel goes forward. So six years, we're about, we're about six years after Pentecost now. Remember, there were a couple, couple years inserted in last week's text. So here we are about six weeks later, and, or six years later, rather, and it's basically a Jewish church. But that's all about to change. Now, by the way, on a, on a sidebar, there are a few groups out there, um, you may run across them at some point in your Christian journey, that will hearken to this fact that the, the early church started as basically a, a sect of Judaism. And they will somehow uh, argue that based on that, we should try to recover the, the Jewishness of the church. But keep in mind that this is exactly what God intended. This is exactly the pro progression that was supposed to take place. And yes, God had to push them a little bit. And, and God had to, God, had to God, God saved a man who was specifically tailored for that ministry to the Gentiles named Paul. But, but God's church is a global church. It is a church of, of all people. So don't think of chapters 9 and 10 as this disjointed story. Keep in mind, as we consider this text of Scripture, that God changes us by working in unusual ways. So as we think about applying this passage to us, what are we reminded of? Well, are there places that you do not expect God to work? Are there places, well, this is God's going to work here. Clearly, this place is, is suited for it. This place is good for it. But what about the places that you're not thinking of? What about the places that are hard or difficult? 
again, I harken back to our guest speaker, um, Brother Hutchison, who was here a few weeks ago, who talked about how, how God is working in unexpected, even hard places. Even places where there are believers being martyred, God is doing wonderful things for the cause of the gospel. I wonder, do you kind of, <coughs> you kind of tend to, in your mind, triage missions as like, you know, there are the, the, the places that we should go because clearly God's going to be at work there. And then just kind of think little of the places that are that are hard, that are that are difficult. God can work not in accordance with our expectations, but in unexpected places. I wonder what hopeless situation you're facing this morning. Is there something that you you think God's power can't overcome? Whether it's a circumstance that you're going through, or a circumstance that a friend is going through, or that thing that you've been praying for for years and still haven't received an answer to. What is the hopeless situation that you should reach out to God and have confidence that in his time, he will work as he sees fit? Because God delights to work in our hopeless situation. I wonder what people in your life do you kind of look down on or think little of. May we be open as God changes our heart and changes our mind. The recognition that, that God is preparing us even through unexpected circumstance to work amongst people that we may not expect to. So you and I can be thankful for this passage of scripture and what God is doing to the church, but may we also apply it to ourselves. Peter wasn't a perfect man. He was a good man, he was greatly used by God, but, but yet God had to change him and shape him and mold him and expand his thinking. May we be open to that as well as God changes us by working in unusual ways. Father, we thank you for our time. We thank you for the word that teaches us these truths. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider these things, that you would help us to be open and to be thoughtful about them. I'm going to allow you to remain bowed before the Lord as we think together.